Ethan met Lisa online, and he thought after their first call, she was the one. Uh, the first night we spoke on the phone, we spoke until three o'clock in the morning. I had called her after work and on my way to go shoot some pool. And instead of ever making it inside the bar, I just sat in the parking lot. You know, I hadn't had a conversation that great, and I don't know, perhaps ever. We talked about ideas and philosophy and love and art. And at the end of it, she says, you're wonderful. Here I am thinking, I'm wonderful. You're the wonderful one. How can we possibly both be falling so hard to have each not only thought echoed, but each feeling mirrored as well to be thinking a thing and have someone else saying it was wonderful. They started talking on the phone all the time, but Ethan wanted to meet her in person. And so the talking went on. We tried to arrange a date. So I was trying to see her, trying to get off work to see her one night, but she had to fly out first thing in the morning to go home for the holidays. She got back and we still couldn't work out the timing, but we'd talk for hours on end. Four months went by without them meeting face to face and it was killing Ethan. I couldn't take it anymore. I had to, I had to do something and I would never do something under normal circumstances like show up unannounced, but my thought was I will show up with flowers at her work and either A, it will go like a movie, so we'll kiss and it'll be romantic and amazing, or B, She'll tell me to screw myself and slap me in the face and not to show up and you're a creepy stalker. That would be that. But then I thought flowers aren't enough for the kind of relationship that we have. So I thought maybe I'll make paper flowers. I'll make some flowers out of paper. And then I thought, no, not just paper. Each one will be made out of one of the poems that we'd shared with each other. And it took me 18 hours. I had no idea it would take so long. It took 18 hours to make a dozen paper roses and I was set on doing it by this one certain day so I was staying up all night making these flowers and I put them in a vase and they actually looked quite beautiful and I show up at her work and no one's ever heard of her so those flowers sat on my desk for close to two years it took Ethan 18 hours to make that bouquet but he held on to that memento for close to two years. Maybe you're the type of person who would have tossed that bouquet of paper flowers straight into the trash can, and if you are, congratulations. But if there isn't a reminder of unrequited love lingering on your desk, there's probably some object somewhere that's meaningful to you. An old movie stub, or a broken antique watch, or a necklace you never wear but hold on to for your own good reasons. Look around, and you'll find an object that takes you back to a memory. When an object that might be mistaken for garbage becomes a memento, that transformation is nothing short of mystical. And with that kind of magic, it can be nearly impossible to throw anything out, at least for me. For example, I recently found a bar napkin preserved between two books on a shelf. It was at least 10 years old, but how do I know what this napkin from that bar on that vacation will mean to me over time? Or what if a piece of myself that I need to revisit is buried in a box of junk I threw out during a purge? And this decision over what to keep or throw out can even be difficult when we no longer want the object, when we know it conjures disappointment and pain, like a paper bouquet of flowers that we spent 18 hours creating to give to a woman who didn't want it. Whether joyful or heartbreaking, the objects hold our memories. They tell our stories. But if the memory is heartbreaking, 
Shouldn't the object be easy to throw out? Shouldn't we want to throw it out? I can remember. And I remember. And I remember. I just can remember. I remember even. Those stories were the essence of what it was to be alive. That's the image that I held in my head. Can you trust that? I'm Terrence Mickey, and welcome to Memory Motel. Four generations of my family have hauled garbage out of Manhattan. We've taken away what people no longer want, and I've seen firsthand how happy they can be when you pull up with an empty truck ready to lighten their lives. But I've never had to help them decide what to hold on to or what to let go of. That's Marie Kondo's job. She's a professional organizer and the author of The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up and her follow-up book, Spark Joy. Her KonMari method is a global sensation. Does it spark joy? Spark joy. The KonMari method asks a simple question. Do the objects in your life spark joy or not? You know that you're experiencing a spark of joy when you touch it and all the feelings, every part of your body just all of a sudden kind of like rises a little bit like, cute. Her method promises that by tidying your physical space, you can tidy your life and ultimately face yourself. I started to read The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, but I ended up throwing it across the room before I could finish organizing my bookshelf. The problem? It assumes I'm rational when I'm not. You could argue that I couldn't face myself, that I couldn't throw out my copy of War and Peace, even though it didn't exactly spark joy, But you could also argue that I actually face myself by keeping my objects. Or I'd like to think so. As I see it, here's the rub. We all really want to let go, but we also all really want to hold on. Of course we're conflicted, which is why we have the Museum of Broken Relationships. After a bad breakup, most Mm. people can't wait to purge reminders of that old love. Now one museum is offering a chance for heartbroken guests to put their relationship mementos on display. The Museum of Broken Relationships in Los Angeles is what? taking donations. So get hmm. destroyed. There's a museum for yes. this? Yes. That's crazy. The Museum is accepting everything from old love letters to even old wedding dresses. The idea and the concept behind this museum is to help provide an outlet for people out there who don't have the heart to give away former mementos. Hmm. The museum. When I heard about the museum, of course, that's where they had to go for a number of reasons. For one, for them to be Looked at two for me to try and let go, and three because she goes to every museum in Los Angeles, and that'll be the only way for her to actually see them. Donating to the museum allows you to experience both the act of letting go and the desire to memorialize. So what we are commemorating are these memorable moments when you are able to say there is before and after. You know, things were never the same after that moment, and these are moments that mark us profoundly. That's Olinka Vistika, the co-founder of the original Museum of Broken Relationships in Zagreb, Croatia. It started with a familiar problem. That museum was born out of a really personal experience. The co-founder of Museum Drajan and myself, we were in an intimate relationship for a long time. And that moment we all fear (laughs) came. 
we were surrounded by all these objects that had a special meaning for us because there were events, moments, people behind them. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was something like an archive where you could keep your emotions alive? So we came to the simple idea of exhibiting personal objects together with the personal story of their owners as a museum. These objects you see are all from everyday life. You can see similar things in your house, in your apartment. Sometimes they are kind of bizarre or surprising, but they look familiar. The museum is a celebration of the mundane. A pair of sneakers next to a toaster oven, next to a frisbee, a magnifying glass, a teddy bear, a set of CDs. I received an envelope with the five black CDs, and they were marked CD 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And the story just started. I was 63, and he was 31, and it blew me away immediately. And that was the music that he recorded for, for her, and she said, I ended the relationship because I, I knew it couldn't go any further. I immediately wanted to, to hear the music that was recorded, and uh, it was, you know, cheerful and joyful music from the 80s disco, and I really, I think it was that song, Electric Dreams, and I was immediately transported. It's, it, it's like a you know, movie developing in front of your eyes through these simple, often elliptic stories that enliven the objects. Everything in the museum appears anonymously, which means anyone can share anything. We made up names for the contributors who spoke to us, like Samantha. I was actually living in London when I first stumbled upon the Museum of Broken Relationships. I was there with my, um, my husband and my three children. And I was in the early throes of deciding whether to leave my marriage and my relationship of 23 years. And I stumbled upon this traveling exhibit. And I was so moved by it. When Samantha invited the museum to set up a temporary exhibit in her city, she experienced firsthand how memories can transform ordinary objects. We had a night, a wonderful hotel in town, did a pop-up drop-off. So people could bring, you know, bring donations. And they invented a drink called the C'est la Vie. And if you brought a donation to the museum, you got this wonderful drink. We literally carried in a box of things we'd collected the night we did the pop-up drop-off. When you see them in a big box, you've collected all these, you know, all these kind of funky objects and they're all over the place. You know, a bookshelf, a little toy soldier, a stuffed bear, there's, you know, it's all over the place. And it did. It looked like a box from a yard sale, like the stuff that didn't sell, you know, <laughs> because it's just people's crap. <laughs> and then we decided that we wanted to just take each object out and put it on the ground and sort of order them in some way. And so you put the object on the floor and you put the story of the object next to it. And that was the first time we'd all read the stories. And 
pretty soon you're looking at the object completely differently because now you have the story attached to it. You know, again, it's not all your projection. Oh, stuffed bear. Yeah, everybody has a stuffed bear. But that's a great story about that stuffed bear. The man who gave it to um, the woman could never say, I love you. And so if you squeeze the stuffed bear's hand, it said, I heart you, babe, which is what he always said to her. I heart you, babe. It's the I heart you, babe, bear. You feel like, oh, we have to take care of this object because this is, this is special. And you touch them differently. You hold them differently. And it's just, you realize, you know, not only are these so important to the people who donated them, so valuable and so powerful, but they're powerful for everyone. And so we have to take care of that thing. We are now, you know, the caretakers of that thing. I remember when we were dismantling our exhibition in Paris and what we did first, we took the objects of the of the pedestals and i cannot describe to you what a weird feeling that was it looked as if someone has taken the color off the stories the object somehow gives the authenticity and it is this material proof that these things happen these are not always you know literary pieces but i think there is this magic happening between the object and the story and that's the tangible and intangible part of the memory that does the trick or the magic whatever we call it sometimes people ask us if these stories how can how can we be sure they are true and I always say, you know, I don't know. I, I, what I know is that the, the motivation to leave the trace was uh, genuine. The magic between a memory and an object is undeniable. But what if the memories we attach to our objects were not true, but imagined? If we knew the memories we placed onto the objects were fiction, would we still elevate the objects, or would they inevitably become trash? Two writers, Rob Walker and Joshua Glenn, attempted to answer this question with the Significant Object Project. The traditional discussion of objects and value is very frequently couched in rational terms that, that don't hold up under scrutiny with the way we actually interact with objects. Rob Walker was writing on how companies attach economic value to commodities asking and trying to answer the question, how do you determine the worth of a product? At the same time, Joshua Glenn had written a book, Take Things Seriously, which examined the relationship between objects and our personal narratives. I was familiar with the work of Joshua Glenn, who became my partner on this, and he, he put out a collection of essays about personal narratives attached to things. And to me, it's uh, what I have always said is that if you walk into someone's living room and you see what's on their mantle, there's some piece by a famous designer and the things that are of obvious value. And then there's some one weird thing that like, why would they have that on display here? And that's, that's the thing you want to ask about. And that's where you'll get the best story. I got in touch with him and, and said, like, you know, I've always wondered about how far could you push that? Could you, could you actually invent stories? that were pure fictions and, and attach them to things and what, what effect would that have on value and could you measure that? At flea markets and thrift stores, they bought the objects that no one else wanted. 
They paid no more than $4 per item, and then they asked fiction writers to create a story inspired by the trinkets. They auctioned the objects with the stories on eBay to see if people would compete for the items and increase the value. You know, the opening bid price would be whatever we paid for it. So if we paid uh, 50 cents for a cow-shaped salt shaker or something like that, that would be the opening bid price. And then um, the item description would, would be this short story. You know, I thought it was a curious and interesting idea, and I thought it was unlikely. The bidding would, in fact, increase the object's value. That's Lydia Millett one of the fiction writers who participated in the project. The particular object that I wrote about uh, was was a small salt shaker in the shape of a bowling bag, um, red and white and black with a little S on it. I've always wanted to be good at a bar game. Pula was my first choice, but no hope there. Darts was another option once, but the first time I tried to get real instruction in a pub in a dreary English town called Wokingham, I blooded the ear of a man. It was the ear of the man I was seeing at the time, a small-time drug dealer who, if I'm going to be honest, liked to watch sculling on the weekends while drinking himself into a stupor. He had almost nothing to say, yet many nights I would take the train from Bayswater, where I lived, to Wokingham and we would sit on his beige couch in his carpeted, bland living room and watch television in an awkward silence. There was a vague idea of sex, but that rarely occurred, and when it did, I found myself missing the TV with a pitiful urgency. And finally, there was bowling, which isn't a bar game per se, but can still be practiced in the evening of a cluster of tabled beer bottles. And don't get me wrong here, I'm not a big drinker. I do like a social beer, though, on a night out, or three or four, or a few glasses of wine. Or I can do a frozen margarita or maybe vodka with a strong mixer. So there was bowling. But I never made much progress, and the round things kept veering into the gutter. Still, the realization took years to settle in fully. (laughs) I would never be a good bowler. And by good, I only mean the kind of bowler who doesn't draw laughs and jibes from onlookers. I would never be passable. With billiards, it was my natural gracelessness that hindered me. But with bowling, it was mostly a case of laziness. I wanted to be a natural. That was all. I had no interest in effort. I found myself at a bowling alley one night while other people were rolling strikes and spares, and I had nothing to do but wander. At the shoe rental counter, they sold accessories, the shirts, the shoes, the bags, In the glass-fronted display, I noticed a small object, red, black, and white, in the shape of a minuscule bowling bag. It turned out to be a salt shaker without a peppermate. It struck me that that was something I could own. I could buy that salt shaker, and I would own it. And at the same time, true enough, I would never be a good bowler. Those other bowlers, casual bowlers of strikes and spares, might have their talent, their grace, their lovely affinity, but I would have my laziness and the salt shaker. I was surprised to see that the objects accumulated so so much value over the bidding process. In the auction, Lydia's item went from 50 cents to $49. That's when we knew that this was going to work. When you set out to 
write a story about an object, even if you had no relationship to it previously, you find that the writing of a story begins to constitute a relationship. And uh, for you also, the object becomes vested with greater significance because you've, because you've written a story about it that's still an inanimate object. And part of the hypothesis that we started with acknowledges tacitly that this makes no sense. Writers got so attached to the objects they'd written stories for that even they started to bid on their own items. Yes, that did become an issue, and we had to implement rules that they weren't allowed to bid on their own object. (laughs) But the reality is we're all susceptible to this stuff, and humans are so tied up in relationships to objects in ways that really justify logic. And if it doesn't, you will know it's not an item that sparks joy if you touch it and it goes, (laughs) Yes, very good. Okay. As humans, we're in the business of making meaning. We want to make sense out of our lives. That's why memories and objects are perfect bedfellows. They bond together and give us a vivid reality to play back or a seductive fiction we want to believe in. Even if you don't tidy up your desk at work or your closet at home, your circumstances will change. Your life will change. That's the nature of life. It doesn't stay the same. And the objects you weren't disciplined enough to throw out will hold the memory of what happened. They'll tell a story. The narrative that had emerged about our relationship and our marriage was that that I was from a broken home and was really a, a damaged, very delicate woman. That's Amy, one of the many people who have donated objects to the Museum of Broken Relationships. And his narrative was, was that he was from a very traditional family, a 1950s family. Let me take you under my wing because I come from such stability and love that I can and will heal you. And uh, that was the, the story. That story for me was was the betrayal. Amy donated a dull butcher knife, a gift from her husband. Even though it was dull, she'd held on to it throughout her marriage. But after the divorce, she could finally see it for what it was, a symbol to separate fact from fiction when it came to the story she told herself. Even though the story went that one of them came from a broken home and the other came from a perfect home, they both became successful university professors. As our marriage began and then evolved, it was a marriage that was very publicly oriented. We were both successful. The, the weight, the power of that image that we worked so hard to uphold outweighed my personal silence for a long, long time. When the marriage ended, Amy confronted all the stuff they'd accumulated as a couple. I went through every single piece of paper, everything. And when you do that, you're going through your entire marriage relationship, your entire time together. And I thought, okay, this is going to be tough. And it really wasn't. And all of a sudden, I looked in my kitchen on the counter and I went, oh, that. (laughs) There was this knife that I realized when I looked at it just gave me a lot of grief still. Like, this is the thing that stands for that relationship. 
And there's, to me, nothing that brings back the, the presence of each of those moments than an object, right? Because you've, you've forgotten the, the memory yourself, and then you have this tangible thing that takes you right back in time. One of the things that my husband was very adamant about was, was the knives. He had a lot of rules about the knives. You don't leave a, a sharp knife in standing water. He had a particular Overnight. place where each knife had to go. You don't leave it in the sink with the tip you know, up against we the We ever had a family sink. over and they put the knife in the wrong place. That was a horrible big deal. And this is a running joke in my family that in our house, despite his obsession with knives, they were perpetually incredibly dull. So yes, the knives all had to be in the same place. And he had this one particular butcher knife and he told me he didn't want me to use it because he said that I didn't know he had to take care of knives. So he said, I'll make you a deal. I'll take you to a knife store and we'll buy you your own butcher knife. And then you'll have your knife and I'll have my knife. And he said, I will not use your knife. I promise. So we go to a knife store and it was, you know, my ex-husband talking to the salesperson who was also a man. It was in a public arena. Both of my children were there. And I am almost positive that my mother was there too. So this became a whole family scene. The humiliation that I felt of, here's this incompetent woman, that she can't even use, you know, the household knife, gets her own sort of servant knife, her second class knife. He showed me how to use it, how to hold it, how to take care of it. And I sort of went, yes, dear, yes, dear. So this transaction between two men about an object that was for an inadequate, quote unquote, woman was really painful. He would, of course, leave my knife in the water, in the sink, in the glasses, etc. Of course, it became dull, like all the other knives in the house. At the one time you're going, okay, this is a really stupid issue. Why am I obsessed over the knives, right? It's not a big deal. And yet, of course, it is the big deal. It is the deal itself that it's tapping into. You know, the thing about, it, the thing about a knife, it's this, on the one hand, symbol of domesticity. And it's how you nurture your family when, when you're cooking food. And yet the irony that, at least they say, dull knives are much more dangerous and can cause more injury than sharp knives. The story had been that he could heal her, but that masked another story that Amy didn't discover until the last few years of her marriage. I found out um, by accident a very, very deep traumatic piece of information about his early life that he had never told me, but it, it was went to the core of our relationship. He had been sexually abused by his brother, and it was pretty difficult to, to hear that knowing that we had gone through years of counseling together and he'd never even told, you know, a, a therapist. Of course, I knew the brother. The brother was our son's godfather. And he, knowing that history, chose his brother as the godfather for our child. That was somehow the thing that really I couldn't handle. It wasn't the particular secret because I understood the pain under that. But it was the narrative that had been put on top of that reality that put me in the subservient, needy role. What he kept hidden wasn't the real betrayal for Amy. It was the fiction he made of her, 
that she was less than him. That's how I'm coming to understand that whole 20 years of having dull knives and why uh, why I realized it was so important and so healing for me to get rid of that dull knife. During her marriage, Amy didn't share her unhappiness with anyone, not close friends or family. She wanted to maintain the power couple image. But once that fell away, a new reality emerged. And my mom, we were going for a walk, and she said, you know, I always thought you were happy. And, you know, you, you guys seemed okay and you seemed happy. But she said, you're transformed now. She said, you are luminescent. I, I never knew that what you looked like happy and, and you are happy. And then I decided to go get my own damn knives. They're not expensive, but they're very sharp. I have not had to sharpen them again. Uh, I can cut a tomato, which is a precedent in the house. I can cut parsley. The old knives would not even cut parsley. And it's really important to touch every, every little item, so every book or every item of clothing. It's, it's really important to make sure that you touch everything in order to really make sure whether it establishes that relationship of a spark of joy or not. We all experience catharsis in different ways. And sometimes you're, you know, throwing someone's stuff out a window dramatically or you're, you know, setting it all on fire. But I suspect even those people who say they burn everything keep one thing back. And it's like the, like a lifeline almost to your memory, like a lifeline to the memory, like it was real, it did happen. The exhibit in Samantha's hometown was a pop-up. But the permanent museum in Los Angeles will open soon, and they've already received over 6,000 donations. If you do have the discipline to let go and throw out what no longer gives you joy, you're a better person than I am. But if you do hold on to your objects, the ones that do and don't spark joy, please know this, you are not alone. In the end, I don't know that we really want to remember things accurately. We want to remember them meaningfully. So I think about my once husband, you know, 10 times a day. And my imagination fills in a very vivid life that we had together. I don't want to lose those 23 years because they're rich and vivid. And I grew up and it's real for me. And I experienced even the pain I want to remember because it was formative. So um, I think by surrendering the object, you sort of give yourself over to obeying your imagination and, and letting it bloom as a memory. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be exact or accurate. It has to be meaningful. Thank you for listening to Memory Motel. Our next episode is on hallucinogenics and memory. What do we remember when what we see is not real? And how does that impact us? To stay tuned, please subscribe to Memory Motel on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by me, Terrence Mickey, your host, and Bart Washaw, our music and sound editor, who also composed the theme song I've Now Fallen In Love With. Carrie Ann Thomas assisted with research and production and also narrated Lydia Millet's story. And we appreciate the support from Jeffrey Yamaguchi, 
Jerome DeRoy, and Murray Nossel. A special thank you to Alinka Vastika from the Museum of Broken Relationships, Rob Walker from the Significant Object Project, and Lydia Millett, whose new novel is Mermaids in Paradise. A big thank you to all the people who donated to the Museum of Broken Relationships and who spoke to us. You can follow us on Twitter at Memory Motel, and for more information, visit our website, memorymotel.audio. Please join us next time. I can't wait to find out what will be there when you go back.